Welcome. This is Out of the Ordinary Books, where we believe that the books we read help us better understand the lives we lead. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And every week we share an Out of the Ordinary book and how it can help you make sense of your story too. These aren't book reviews or recommendations. These are conversations about some of our best friends, worst enemies, toughest coaches, most passionate lovers, and kindest teachers that line our bookshelves. We hope these conversations help you see the deeper story hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. Lisa Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot here at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Last week, we talked about detective fiction and mysteries. And so now I want to know, have you put P.D. James on your library hold list yet? I can honestly say that I tried. I pulled oh. it up. <laughs> I went to my, I pulled it up my library and they don't carry any of her books in print. What? Isn't that weird? I know. So they had electronic like audio versions and they also had old VHS tapes. So somehow some of her books have been turned into movies, I guess, like old Mm. ones that are only on VHS, but they did not have any of her books, not even like in the whole system because I will request books all the time from interlibrary loan and they didn't have them. But while I was That's there, bizarre. I did pick up. And look, I'm going to do show and tell for Christy. I have Friends Lovers Chocolate I did get by Alexander McCall Smith. And <laughs> since I was looking for P.D. James and I didn't have her, I went down a whole fairy tale rabbit trail because we had talked about Patricia McKillop and Robin McKinley. And I got two of Yay. those that I haven't read yet. So I did stock up from the library, but they didn't have any of the James books. Isn't that odd? Well, that might just have to be a... Um, birthday gift or something from me to you because they are so well worth reading. But yeah, I think that's what's happening, Lisa Joe, as we have these conversations as you and I dig into our own bookshelves and our own memories of our childhood bookshelves. And as our listeners get in touch with us and tell us about Oh, if you like this, you might like that. I know the stack of books next to my, like on my bedside table. It's (laughs) It's always like a tottering high pile, but it's getting higher and higher. And um, I appreciate this comment uh, in the Black Barn Online. So our listeners, most of you know that um, we uh, cultivate this online community called the Black Barn Online at blackbarnonline.com. And every Thursday, we... Uh, kind of drop a prompt in there to um, uh, have some conversation around that week's episode. And uh, so last week, after the detective novel show, uh, Hannah Ravel uh, left this note and she said, first time commenter here, which I just love. Um, she said, as soon as Christy began to introduce the encounter, I love that too, the encounter with the childhood book on the shelf, I thought... Surely it has to be Nancy Drew. (laughs) I devoured them as a child, too. I used to go to secondhand bookstores on Saturdays and scour the shelves, searching for titles that would fill gaps in my collection. I only have a dozen or so that were saved after I left home, and I recently added them to my own kids' bookshelf, along with my remaining Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl 
Just going to stop here and say Hannah. Yes, love both of those. Um, Among other favorite children's authors. And then she says, my kids are toddlers, so we're still quite a way off. And also, Lisa Joe, she said that she knew about this, that adventure series you mentioned. She said, I had a feeling the adventure series was about to be introduced when I heard Boy's Bookshelf. And then she says, a great listen. But what I thought reading Hannah's comment was, oh my gosh, it's like, as we have these conversations, and as we bring what we've kind of described as a friend to the table, right? It's not a book review podcast, but we're having these conversations. We're bringing a friend to the table. The friend comes in the form of, you know, books and and writers we love. Then it's like discovering, it's like when other people show up and say, I have that friend too. It's a mutual (laughs) friend, right? (laughs) Or they're like, you have to meet this friend of my friend. Yes. Then they introduce us to all these other books. Oh, if you love that mystery, you're going to love this one. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like this community and this conversation sort of grows and grows. And we realize we're more connected than we realize. Because even though reading is generally, usually for us, a solitary experience, finding out that this uh, someone else has read this book and now you have this in common um, I don't know. It's just proving to me that it really actually isn't so solitary and that it is something important that connects us. Um, and yeah, I'm just, so I'm just really grateful for everyone who's responding with um, recommendations or that kind of like, me too. I love those books too. And, and so the conversation grows. The right. community grows. And I mean, in places we don't expect, I recently got a message from my aunt in South Africa. She's my mom's youngest sister. Hi, Auntie Lise, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so special because she said she'd caught up on a bunch of our episodes. And it's almost a surreal experience to hear a family member in South Africa refer to you, Christy, by your first name as if they know you too, you know? (laughs) Like we've met, right? Yes, we have you in common. And she had so loved our our episodes on fairy tale, but then also Narnia for grownups, where we unpacked Lewis and the space trilogy that he wrote. And she messaged me, and now I immediately have to start rereading the space trilogy. <laughs> and it was special, too, because it felt a little bit like how you feel if maybe a favorite English professor listens to something that you've put out, your opinions, because Auntie Lise and my mother have always been my go-to when it comes to books. They love books. Lise is a librarian. And um, they have years more experience than I do in all these areas of story. So I always feel both excited and then nervous for, did I do it justice? (laughs) Did I get it right? (laughs) So it's really affirming to hear from her how much she loved it and how meaningful the conversations have been all the way in South Africa. So it's an incredibly special experience. And I think that's part of why I'm excited about the book Friend I brought to the table today, because It does really pick up this thread of how sometimes when we discover a world that we love, we really do want to introduce other people to that world, but then we want more of that world. And when I say we, we'll have to find out if Christy agrees. That's how I feel. (laughs) There's this sense of I want to read more. Not in a, um, I never feel like I want to enter the world in as much as I want to how do they pronounce that word? I don't want to do cosplay. Like I don't want to dress up like I live Mm -hmm. in the world. And Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. want to read fan fiction about the world because generally Mm -hmm. that to me feels disappointing because it's not actually the author. I mean, even in the case of my favorite mystery writer, Dick Francis, um, his son, after Dick passed away, his son, Felix Francis, continued to write the books. And he had trained under his father for years. They had co-written a lot of books together. But I can tell from the opening sentence, it's a different voice. You just 
You just know. And I tell Peter, I set myself up for, for disappointment every time I try to read a Felix Francis book because I'm like, maybe it'll, you know, maybe it'll be. I'm just like so desperate to hear Dick Francis's voice. And every time I'm disappointed that it isn't the same person. So for me, it's not about trying to extend the world through you know, fan fiction or cosplay, et cetera. But what I do love is if the author themselves offers you um, kind of, I think, what Lewis and Tolkien especially offers when you think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, then there's the Samorillion and all these other books that are part of the world that he created. They are written by him and they provide context and deeper meaning to that world. So for me, that's what I'm talking about. Was that a long enough setup mm-hmm. <laughs> for this book? <laughs> so there's a series I haven't talked about yet here. I've definitely talked about it on the podcast before, but one of my favorite mystery writers, her name is Elizabeth Peters, and she wrote a whole series about a female archaeologist called Amelia Peabody, one of the greatest character names ever, in my opinion. And this, they're probably like 16 or 17 books. At some point, we'll do an episode just on them. But what I want to talk about today is because these books take place in Egypt, because Amelia is an archaeologist, one of the things that, that was produced to go with these books that I admit was an immediate sucker and had to own it right away when it came out is this book. It's actually a compendium I'm holding up so Christy can see it. It's huge. It's like this. It looks like a textbook. It's giant. Yeah. And it's called Amelia Peabody's Egypt, a compendium. And it's so delicious is the only word for those of us who love books and the time period that they're written in, because what is in here is it really does read kind of like an encyclopedia. It covers a lot of the historical events that the book takes place in or around. And I'm going to pause for a minute to say part of what makes books special is when you learn more about the author through their writing, obviously. And this author, Elizabeth Peters, um, famously, that's not her real name. Her real name is Barbara Mertz. I love her because she lived here in the Maryland area on a big farm But before that, she went to the University of Chicago, like you, Mm -hmm. Christy. Yeah, I remember this connection. Yes. There's, I'm remembering, like, so the University of Chicago is famous for a particular program and a particular museum. And I have a feeling that, that, is that why she was there for those studies? She got her PhD (laughs) in Egyptology from the University of Chicago at a time in history when women did not enter those fields. That was not a place available to women. So she studied and she said at the time she was told by her professors though that it was a waste for her to do this degree because at the end of it, she would just be taking the position of a man who would in fact go on to practice Egyptology, whereas she, a woman, was expected to just have children and stay home. And uh, she famously talks about how she did go to Egypt many, many times um, and became a writer and indeed went on to have children and ended up being divorced. And then as a single mom with two kids, it was her degree in Egyptology that allowed her to support her family through writing these incredibly detailed fiction novels about Egypt. So what's fun to me about this compendium is I kind of feel like it's Barbara Mertz's like 
take that to the University of Chicago because <laughs> she wrote basically a textbook about Egypt and then wove into it her fictional characters. So, for example, like there are whole sections of the book that are just like photograph, you know, those old, old style photographs. It's like black and white. It looks kind of half illustration, half photograph, but it really is a photograph. Like she has photographs in quotation marks of all of her characters in the book. And I'm like, where did they get those? Like, what oh, how interesting. random secondhand store did she go to to find these pictures <laughs> of the so-called characters? But then she has whole sections in the book that are incredibly detailed about Egypt, about archaeology at the time, about very famous archaeologists who operated at the time, their methods, the scandals surrounding them. Mm -hmm. It's just all of this. I mean, really, it's like a mashup of history and fiction in one beautiful textbook. Mm -hmm. And... um I, I love it. Like, I love it. It makes me so happy. And I, I realize this is a different than a normal book to talk about it, but I brought it because I was curious. I'm curious, Christy, how you feel about this. You know, these subsidiary type books that might mm -hmm. live orbit around the universe of writers that we love. Is this something you would have on your shelf or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, so hearing you describe it, I, I realize, yeah, I do have thoughts about this. It, so, and, and actually, I'll probably have questions too, because I'm curious to hear more about, yeah, what it is that really draws you to this and how much it's the sort of fictionalized part of it, like the photographs that she says are of her characters that, of course, are, you know, like the characters are made up. There are no photographs. And then the history side of it, because I, so I have always loved history. History was my favorite subject growing up. Famously in our family, I always <laughs> share this story with my kids that when we were, when I was young in school, and maybe they still do this, I don't know, but there, we would play this game in the classroom called Around the World. Does that sound familiar? And it would be like a question and answer game. You could do it with math problems, or you could do it with history quizzes. And what would happen is the teacher would sort of start at one corner desk and match up those two students and ask a question. And then whoever won would sort of travel to the next desk. And then you would answer no. the question. And, and if, you d if you answered incorrectly, you'd have to sit down right there. If you answered correctly, you'd keep moving. Um, but in, I don't remember what grade this would have been, you know, fourth grade maybe, <laughs> my teacher had to ask me to like step down from the around the world game because what? I would just go around and around <laughs> and around. <laughs> That's awesome. Because I loved it. And I had no problem. Because I loved it, I had no it was easy for me to recall the facts, right? Yeah. They were just right there in my head. Yeah. And so it it became not fun for everyone else in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's great because actually today one of my kids, um, my older son, loves history as well and also kind of has that brain that remembers like mm. random historical data. <laughs> and so he and I have some fun conversations or share a love of certain books. So even though I think I've only read a couple of the Peabody books, and actually I did really like them, and I need to make the time to just read from the beginning straight through this series, which I know I would love. I'm actually, I would definitely check out this book because of the history. So I would love to know more about the actual history. And um, this relates to a reading experience that I, a really special one I had as a kid. Some of my favorite, favorite books. After Nancy Drew, so after Nancy Drew, I mentioned <laughs> last week, um, around age nine, this new company opened, which 
uh, people will know today, called American Girl. Mm. And they had these dolls based on like historical periods in American history. And each doll had books that told her story in history. Right. And so I loved these dolls. I loved these books. My favorite thing about the book, though, was actually not the fiction story of the doll, the girl. It was this section that was at the back of every American Girl doll book. And it featured many black and white photographs from that period in history or illustrations if it was from a time before photography. Um, and then history of the time. So, but connected to that doll's story. Mm. So, hey, Samantha did such and such. Well, here's the true history of this. And here's some photographs from that period and, you know, the early 1900s. And so, I would actually, I'd get a new American Girl doll book and I would skip to the back first and read that history section. And then I would read the story, but it was always the history section that was my favorite. There was just something about feeling like I had been given like access to something real mm. that I I knew nothing about. There was just something about that that felt like time travel to me or something beyond even the story. Like the stories were fun, but the history to me felt like this is real yeah. and I need to know this. <laughs> no, I love that too. Like, and this is a combination of my two favorite things like fiction history, like fictionalized history. And often I have this experience with my kids will be watching a movie that's maybe based on some historical event, right? Mm -hmm. But then the movie is just giving you like these American Girl doll books and insight into certain characters who may have lived during that event, but they're not historical characters. And then, so here's a very easy example that most people have access to is Titanic, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And I was watching this with my teenagers and they will ask me things like, well, but but are they real? Like Uh, Jack and Rose, like are they... Did, are they care yeah. like were they people on the Titanic? Yeah, yeah. And I'll be like, no, they weren't. It's an imagining of the kind of people who may have been on the Titanic. My mm-hmm. daughter does this too. If we're watching anything, you know, shows that Zoe loves that are historically based, she'll always say, "Is it real?" And that's mm. a tricky answer because yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> historically speaking, it's real. These three people whose story you're watching, they aren't real in as much as people with those names may not have lived, but people with those stories may have been real. So it is this very interesting blurring of fact and fiction. And I think that's why this kind of compendium is so fun to me, because it's like history with a little dose of sugar to help it go down. (laughs) Because I am not like pure history. That doesn't interest me as much. But I think it's because we are shaped by the people who told us stories. And my father to this day, the all-time greatest storyteller I know, very gifted at story, was always taking us inside the story from some character's perspective and then like acting it out for us. So, I mean, Bible stories, for example, at our house were raucous because my dad would now be John the Baptist in the wilderness, you know, and um, we grew up a lot. I was born in KwaZulu-Natal, so the Zulu nation has always been very important to my father. And he, we would read a lot of the stories of the battles that were fought at that time and the people who lived during those times and who they loved and who they hated and who they were enemies with. And then my dad would tell those stories from the inside out. And often I've had this experience now with my own kids or even my brothers. I've talked to them, for example, about a movie I saw 
or a book I read, but I tell it, right? So like, you have to see this because, and then I share all the parts of it that I love. And then often they'll read the book or watch the movie and say, it wasn't as good. It's as, as like when <laughs> you were telling better. it. And so there is something about that act. It's almost like an act of translation or interpretation, mm-hmm. I feel like, mm-hmm. where we take history or we take a big event and then we inject our own character and our perspectives and our loves into those things um, that resonate in this very unique way. And so it made me really think a lot after last week's conversation about mystery and detectives and why we love them and the form and structure of how those stories are told. And then how it's sometimes carried on when we then want to understand the historical period that that was set in. But we like it because maybe it's being told through the voice of one of our favorite fiction writers. So there's this lovely blending of the two. Mm -hmm. And I think actually this may be why I also love to read older fiction, like fiction that feels like from a particular historical (laughs) era, because to me that feels like direct access to that mindset or the setting. And there might be details in there that when they were written down, weren't, self-consciously historical at all. They were just observations about, you know, reality. And yet, again, time travel. Yeah. (laughs) But time travel in the way I like, which is not at all sci-fi, but just, um, you know, just historical time travel. Fiction is so great for that. So, this is interesting. I differentiate your Peabody book from, to me, it feels a little different, something like the Tolkien, where I personally, I love Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, but I have never yet ventured into into um, the other sort of stories that he wrote, like The Cimmerillion, yeah. I think it's called. and um, Or another example would be, I have really enjoyed the Harry Potter stories, and maybe we'll do an episode at some point about what we see as like real gospel elements um, in that storytelling. But I have never read... Even though I know my kids have it on the shelf, I've never read like the the play, um, mm. the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, or right. some of the additional right. um, texts that you can buy around the Harry Potter world. Even though I love Harry Potter, I've never read them. And I think the difference for me is that I like books because they're they're manageable. They have a beginning, a middle an end. When I turn the last page, I am holding the complete thing. <laughs> and I feel like I can then try to understand it. Um, and it's it's me size, you know, it's holdable. It's not overwhelming. It's just right. Even a really long book, it's still, it, it's just right. And so, when there start to be these other things, like I start to feel like, oh, maybe I don't really fully understand this author's world until I've also read this and I've also read that. I start to feel kind of overwhelmed (laughs) and I feel like the thing that was manageable, the world that was manageable that I felt like, oh, I really understand this. I I, kind of have a sense of the whole thing has now started to branch off in areas where I feel like, oh, now now I'm losing track. Now I'm tired. Now I can't keep up. (laughs) And I don't like that feeling. So I don't, I just like don't want to go there. I want to feel like, hey, I've read Harry Potter from beginning to end. I know it. <laughs> and I don't need to read that other stuff. That's so funny because I think I have a similar feeling about that. So I've never read The Cimmerillion either. I'm aware that it's out there. I One of my favorite clips of all time, I don't know if you've seen it, is Stephen Colbert 
where uh-uh, he, no. like audience members can ask him questions during parts of his show. And someone tries to stump him on a question to do with Tolkien and something in uh-huh. the Cimmerillion. And then he just spouts off like, I mean, it literally sounds like he's speaking another language. All of oh, this wow. insane, detailed information about <laughs> languages and names and people I've never heard of and places I've never heard yeah. of. But he talks like an insider's insider. And in that moment, I realized it did make me feel like an outsider, like, oh, I've loved Tolkien my whole life and I have no idea what he's talking about. What you're talking about. (laughs) So maybe for me, it's the fantasy world too, where I don't feel the need. I don't feel that, I don't feel the need to watch like anything Star Wars related that comes out, like the TV shows around it. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. those just don't interest me at all. But you're right, like the historical landscape that a story is based in maybe it's because it feels like it is part of my world still like it's a world i have some ties to so here's a great example i want to read an excerpt from the compendium so she has a whole section on the women's suffrage movement in england Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's a huge theme in the fiction books where the main character elizabeth Uh, Peters writes about Amelia Peabody is like chaining herself to fences and protesting Mm. for the women's vote and characters that she references and has interactions with are real people who actually lived during those times. And so you get these wonderful snapshots and they just have these beautiful pictures like in photographs that, you know, of women being arrested. And um, Mm. of course, it's funny because it's funny to me as a modern reader because they look like characters in a cartoon, you know, like the police have those little grass bowler hats and the women are dressed <laughs> up and they have, you know, what do you call it? The, um, the little, the, they have brooches and class, you know, everything is so polite. It all looks very polite. And yet she's being politely escorted to jail. It's the funniest <laughs> thing. And so there's this quote that's so wild. And this is the thing. The book is so well-researched. And there's a quote by Winston Churchill on the women's movement that, you know, you think of him as this great man and then you read right. this quote oh, and no. it's, wow, you're just kind of left shaking your head. And it says here, he claimed that the women's suffrage movement was contrary to natural law and the practice of civilized states. Wives were, he said, adequately represented by their husbands and unmarried women would support every kind of hysterical fad if they were given the right to vote. Wow. And then what's even worse is that the queen, Queen Victoria, weighs in on all of this. And her response is, this is actual quote written, you know, from her, so I guess issued by the palace. The queen is most anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad wicked folly of women's rights with all its attendant horrors on which her poor feeble sex is bent forgetting every sense of womanly feeling and propriety it is a subject which makes the queen so furious that she cannot contain herself god created men and women different then let them remain each in their own position women would become the most hateful heartless and disgusting of human beings were she allowed to unsex herself and where would be the protection which men was intended to give the weaker sex wow fascinating amelia responds to that quote in the fiction book says here amelia's reaction to victoria's sexist view was predictable 
Honesty compels me to note that Her Gracious Majesty's ignorant remarks about the sex she adorned did nothing to raise it from the low esteem in which it was held. And so (laughs) you have this great moment where here's a historical quote by the Queen and, you know, the Prime Minister. And then there's our intrepid archaeologist responding in the way we would all like to respond to. And for me, it's that marriage of those two conversations (laughs) that makes a book like this really special. I love that. It's like the author gets to go back (laughs) and speak up (laughs) and say, this is what should have been said and have interactions like conversation, right? We're always talking about conversation. Like now we're having a conversation between me as the writer and my character and Queen Victoria. Like how cool is that? Wow. The power of of an imaginative writer. That's really fun. But I do love though how as, as much as she shares these accurate moments, she also does have photographs of people who must have been real people that she calls her characters and then gives you this whole like historical background. And it made me think of you, Christy, and how you have hanging in your dining room, the creepy twins is what <gasps> we call right. them. And I'm going to yes. out you on this because you, <laughs> you said this is the part you don't like. And yet hanging in your own house, you have portraits <laughs> of people you are not related to because you like the idea of the story behind them. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. I'll have to share photos. I've never, I don't think, shown like on Instagram or anywhere, the creepy twins. <laughs> So the story of the creepy twins, dear listener, (laughs) well, it's this. So I, um, she's no longer living, but I had an aunt, Glenda Beth, my father's oldest sister. We never lived in the same town, so I didn't spend a lot of time with her growing up, but I spent enough. She, her home was often halfway on our trips to Colorado, or so we would stay the night in her home growing up occasionally. And Glenda Beth was like, I knew as a kid we are connected. <laughs> we have common interests. Glenda Beth loved old things. She was always finding treasures at antique stores. So her home was full of um, old things that she and her husband had refurbished and remade. She was really an artist. I don't know if she would have called herself that, but she was. She learned how to make china dolls and she would like everything, paint them, sew their clothes, and they were exquisite. And as a little girl who loved history and old things and dolls, I would sleep in her home under um, this crocheted bedspread that she had crocheted herself, this massive, beautiful, lacy crocheted bedspread. Um, So anyway, that was my Aunt Glenda Beth. And um, over the years, she would collect many old things. And um, before she passed away, my parents had been with her in Texas, and then they came up to visit me, and they brought me a couple things. They brought actually some framed family photographs that apparently were rather scary looking, and no one else in the family wanted them. (laughs) But they knew that I would take them, and I did. (laughs) But they also brought two framed pictures in these really cool, ornate, like 19th century gilded frames, like oval frames, oval pictures. The kind that hang on the walls of every horror movie house. (laughs) (laughs) And they're pictures of two girls, like there's a girl in each, who must be sisters, or it's it's hard to know, but they look the same, but not the same. So, you know, set, but the pictures are, are you know, they, they just really echo one another. So we just call them the twins. And and so my, my parents were like, you don't, nobody wants these. Do you want these? These are not family members. Glenda Beth just found them somewhere <laughs> in an antique store and she picked them up and no one wants them. 
And so a couple things. <laughs> First of all, they were they have that weird 19th century tinting the where they glass. were obviously like black and white, but then they would color tint things to add color to it. And the colors that are chosen are weird and don't look real, but they're actually this sort of lovely turquoise shade. <laughs> <laughs> and they matched my dining room perfectly. <laughs> So I decided that, hey, the creepy twins are right at home, aesthetically, in my color scheme, in my dining room. And everyone gave me such a hard time about them. And my kids were like, no, mom, they're scary. Ah." I just dug in my heels and thought, you know, you creepy twins are welcome. You are some (laughs) real people and you are welcome in my house. And... (laughs) So now we make up stories about them and the kids, you know, have stories about them. But I think they look right at home on the walls at Maplehurst. So So for now, at least they are staying. Creepy (laughs) twins. Well, you'll have to let us know, listeners, if you have any kind of creepy art like that, that may or may not be related (laughs) to you because you love the pretend story behind it. That's not Mm. even real. I mean, I do think that's a big theme in our household, too. I, I remember when Peter and I, before we were even dating, One of our favorite things to do is if we were hanging out like at a coffee shop, I remember we did a road trip with friends down to Virginia Beach once and we were just sitting on the boardwalk. We would look at people passing by and then we'd play this game where we each had a turn to pick someone and make up a story about them. Interesting. And it was always trying to trump each other's story. And Mm -hmm. um, we used to do it all the time. And so I think I think about my kids have kind of inherited that too. Zoe will make up stories about inanimate objects even in our house that she has strong feelings about. So I do think when you mix history with fiction, you get something a little magical. Yeah, you do. And I love what this says about just this this human innate desire and ability to weave stories and to connect dots and to um, explore and seek the truth through stories that might be made up. But that really cool relationship between storytelling, even when it's fiction, even when it's imagined, and the truth, which is always in these conversations as we explore our bookshelves, really what we're searching for. And I'll say again, who we're searching for, like truth is embodied in Christ and who we follow. And whether I'm reading, you know, whatever crazy fiction I'm reading, it's connected. It's connected. And it's all a part of this truth seeking that is so much fun sometimes. So yeah, I love this. I'm like opened up now in new ways, I think, to exploring (laughs) uh, fictionalized worlds. (laughs) So thanks. There are lots of creepy twin type pictures in this book. I think it would be right up your alley. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.